Hey, this is Bridget, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Now, today, we're talking about gender disparity. I know, you're thinking, what else is new? But did you know that gender disparity actually continues even after we die because women can't catch a break even when we're six feet under? It's true. In 1977, scholars Robert Kastenbaum, Beatrice Kastenbaum, and Sarah Payton were the first to raise the question of gender disparity after death. They hypothesized that the, quote, dominant male-preferring value system of the United States would carry over the threshold from life to death. In order to prove this theory, they looked at newspaper obituaries. The authors of this study used the obituaries as a subtle, unobtrusive way to figure out society's value system. They proposed that men would get a greater public recognition after death than women. They looked at two major newspapers, the New York Times and the Boston Globe, and their findings probably won't surprise you. They found that men receive four times as many obituaries as women and that male obituaries are longer and 10 times more likely to be accompanied by a photograph. Ultimately, their research found that readers of these two newspapers were receiving, quote, systematic, if subtle, confirmation of the greater importance of men. So probably surprising no one, there's a real gender disparity when it comes to obituaries. Amanda Hess actually pointed this out in 2014, writing for Slate, where she pointed out that most of the subjects of the New York Times' obituaries achieved their final criteria for inclusion between the ages of 60 and 100. That means that they made their marks on society in the 1940s to the 1960s, when women were particularly excluded from spheres of politics, journalism, filmmaking, science, technology, literature, and professional athletics that typically earn attention from the Times. Now, that may be true, but we should also take a look at the editorial choices that go into who does or doesn't get an obituary. And to do just that, I'm joined by Jessica Bennett. You probably already know that name, but in case you don't, she is an award-winning journalist who writes on gender, sexuality, and culture— She was recently named the gender editor for the New York Times, and she's the first person to ever hold that role. Now, Jessica pretty much wrote the book on sexism, literally. Her book, Feminist Fight Club, is a manual for navigating a sexist workplace and is a must-read. Jessica, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So, Jessica, I found it really interesting that there is this gender disparity when it comes to obituaries. I was reading this piece by Amanda Hess back in 2014 that she wrote for Slate about how 66 of the most recent obituaries that she found in the New York Times, of those 66, only seven of them were about women. And so I wonder, like, what do you think is going on here when it comes to this disparity? You know, I think that media for most of history has been created by and for white men primarily. So what we decided to do was we looked back at our obituaries over time, going all the way back to 1851, so that's 167 years, and we calculated the number of had been devoted to women. And what we found was that only about 15 to 20% over time had been about women, and even in the past couple of years, just one in five. Now, there's no perfect way of determining these numbers. There were certainly some flaws to the methodology, and we couldn't account for race, which was disappointing because I'm sure most of these were also of white people. But what we could take away from that very clearly was that it wasn't good enough. What we wanted to do with the Overlooked Project was take a fraction of those and write the obituaries for the women who never got them, but arguably should have. 
And so certainly we're not correcting the problem over 167 years, but we are highlighting some of the real glaring omissions. So who were some of those women who were sort of shockingly left out of the New York Times' obituary section? Well, some of them are names that you would recognize, like Sylvia Plath or Charlotte Bronte, who wrote Jane Eyre, or Ida B. Wells, the journalist and suffragist who was a leading voice of the anti-lynching movement. And, you know, it was fascinating to dig back into these archives because with some of these cases, women like Ida B. Wells, well, for example, her wedding was in fact printed on the front page of the New York Times. And yet when she died, she didn't receive an obituary. Charlotte Bronte, we only discovered this the day that we published. Somebody pointed this out to me. But when her husband died, it said Charlotte Bronte's husband dies. And yet when she, the subject of his obituary, actually passed away, she did not receive one. What? So it was fat. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, you know, you can you can make the assumption that this wasn't the same editor overseeing the section when her husband died as when she died. But there were these glaring omissions that we wanted to correct. So for folks who might be saying, OK, big deal. So what? Sylvia Plath didn't get a write up in The Times. Who cares? Why does this actually matter? I think it matters because so many women have traditionally been erased from history, you know, whether it is them achieving accomplishments that men then simply got the credit for, or simply being famous in their own right, but not getting something as simple as an obituary when they passed away. I think it's indicative of this larger cultural issue. And one of the things that was fascinating was to see not only the the big-name famous women who didn't receive obituaries, but women who'd accomplished amazing things who you may not have heard of, but who in their own right deserved obituaries. So, for example, I wrote the obituary for a woman named Emily Warren Roebling. And she, in the 1890s, completed the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge, which was, of course, dubbed the eighth wonder of the world and was an 11-year, multimillion-dollar process. Well, her husband had actually been the chief engineer of that project, but he came down with a mysterious illness. And so she was tasked with going back and forth to the construction site, overseeing all of the paperwork, and in her petticoat, which was pretty rare to see on a construction site in the 1890s, essentially overseeing this whole process. And yet nobody really knew about her. I had never heard of her before. And meanwhile, her husband has received multiple biographies. Again, that's that's so shocking. And she clearly lived such an incredible life and did incredible things, things that we, you know, still, I mean, the Brooklyn Bridge still exists. And it's it's so telling to me how we ignore these contributions from women, even when those contributions are very much still part of our, our world today. Right. I mean, the quote, anonymous was a woman, the Virginia Woolf quote, it, I kept thinking about it throughout this process because truly these women just were often in the background kind of anonymous, even though they were doing these incredible things. And it was interesting to look back. So as we were pulling all of these numbers back 167 years, we actually about midway through realized we needed to restart some of our research because we've been coming up with these names. There's no real perfect way of finding out who did not receive an obituary, but who should have. So to some extent, an editor on our obituaries team, Amy Padnani, had been collecting names that she had noticed over time. And I, as just 
someone who loves history and is fascinated by women's history had a list in a notebook somewhere in my house of women's names who sort of didn't get credit for things. And so I would type these into our Times Machine search engine that looks back at the archives and scroll through trying to find out if these women had received obituaries. But at some point we realized that, in fact, until the late 1970s, if you were a woman and you died, you would actually be cataloged under your husband's name. So it would be Mrs. Husband's name. And so I had to go back through and redo all of this research because I had been searching under the women's names. More with Jessica after this quick break. And we're back. So who were some of the women, if you can remember, who were on your, your notebook list of women who didn't really get a lot of credit, but you thought this person probably deserves an obituary because they were awesome? Well, Ida B. Wells was one that I immediately typed in, just curious if we had ever done her. And in fact, we hadn't. Um, you know, some other people who were bigger names that I that I searched were those like Frida Kahlo, who did receive an obituary, but in hers, in 1953, when she died, she was referred to in the very first sentence as, quote, the wife of Diego Rivera, oh, yeah. and then in the second paragraph as a painter in her own right. So there are other, you know, we could do a whole separate project on, like, rewriting obituaries in a way that was less condescending and patronizing. Um, Susan B. Anthony was another one that I looked up, and she was referred to as having a very pleasant-looking face in her obituary. Um, but some of the women that I had on that list were those like Ada Lovelace, who had written what is now believed to be the first line of computer code, and yet at the time she didn't really get much credit and people didn't really know who she was. As I started doing research, I found people like Ruth Ellis, who was the first black printing press owner in Detroit and eventually turned her home into something called the gay space where she essentially created a community space to help LGBT youth at a time when this was pretty uncommon. Um, there was Martha Coston who invented the maritime signal flare, which basically revolutionized communication between U.S. Navy vessels. Um, and yet, in 1859, when this was patented, she was listed as the administratrix of the project with her husband. Um, and he, in fact, got credit for the actual invention, even though he had been dead for 10 years at the time. What? <laughs> so that's one that will be upcoming. Yeah, there's so many stories like this. It goes on and on and on. Um, and we we wanted to put out a call when, when we initially published the project, allowing people to submit names and, and tell us who we might have missed. And it's been overwhelming. We've gotten more than 2,500 submissions, many of which are completely valid and worthy submissions of women and people of color and other people that we've overlooked who really do deserve credit. Wow. The fact that you got so many submissions, and this project hasn't been live for very long, what does that make you what does that tell you about sort of how we are thirsting to see our stories told and to see our our legacies memorialized? I mean, the fact that you had this open call to, you know, provide obituaries for people only up for, you know, a little while and already so many people have said, "Do her, do her, or do this person, do this person." I mean, it just seems to suggest that 
obituaries are, are really powerful and that we, we're thirsting to have our stories told in that way. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, obituaries are not a section I typically flip to when I'm reading through a newspaper. But at the same time, they're kind of this final testament to a person's life. And they sort of have this way of telling an audience or a readership, like, who was worthy and and who wasn't. And so in that way, for so many years, it has been a group of editors inside an institution who've made those decisions. And, you know, to some extent, you could see in the writing of these how society valued or did not value these contributions, but it was also editors making these decisions. And so I do think we're in a moment right now where there's, you know, this sense that we need to do a better job of unearthing stories, of elevating underrepresented voices. And I think that's reflected both in our desire to do better and to do this project, but also in the overwhelming response that we've received. Like, there are a lot of people that have been missed, and luckily our audience is here to tell us that. Something I found super interesting um, that this longtime New York Times obituary editor, William McDonald, said was that he was basically like, listen, obituaries, we don't cover the present, we cover the past, and when you look at America, you know, the people who were sort of making headlines and making history and getting getting their props for it in the, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, those people were men because our society is f***ed up and women were kept out of careers like politics, law, medicine, you know, um, athleticism. We didn't live in a society where women's contributions to these big fields were adequately examined. And so thus, even today— obituaries, it's one of the reasons why perhaps they skew male, that it's a reflection of a time in society where women were not on equal footing and did not have equal representation for their accomplishments. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's kind of two things happening here. It's like, yes, the fact that you're looking back at the past and that women and people of color have historically had to work three times, four times, five times as hard to achieve the same things and get the same credit. Um, but also newsrooms that were traditionally white and male making the majority of these decisions. Like, I don't think it's an accident that now that we see more women in newsrooms, there is more attention being paid to some of these issues. So it's interesting to look back. The way that obituaries work is that there's something called advances, and that means that we are writing the obituaries for people who have not yet died. And they all live down in what's called the morgue, um, in a sub-sub-basement of a building next door, where we essentially have these, these news clippings that have been written sometimes 20, 30 years ago, telling the stories of people's lives. And so when a person dies, we're resurfacing that and updating it to publish in the present day. But it's interesting to see how sometimes the language reflects the time in which it was originally written. And in some cases, we need to do a better job of updating it. Like, times have changed. I think that's such a good point. It actually takes me back to this um, conversation the Times had in 2013 around an obituary written for this really, really badass rocket scientist, Yvonne Brill. And the obituary mentioned, you know, a lot about her domestic life, how she was a good cook, a good mother. And a lot of folks said, hey, you know, she also had these amazing professional contributions to science. Why isn't that getting as much play? I mean, she was a f***ing rocket scientist. Right. And so this this obituary mentions that she, like, 
was really good at cooking stromboli or something like that. And Yeah, she made a mean beef stroganoff, I think it was. Exactly. And so folks wrote in and said, hey, this is not how you properly eulogize a fucking rocket scientist. And would you do this if they were a man? Right, exactly. I remember that. I remember reading that at the time. I think this was like 2013. Um, and I still refer to it as uh, beef stroganoff gate. But yeah, you know, I mean, this is part of my job here, which is that we, in some cases, need to do a better job of covering gender issues at large, whether that means gender identity or sexuality or women and feminism, but also looking at the way that we think about things like language and tone and photography and bylines and making sure that they're representative. Like, yeah, the first line of an obituary of a rocket scientist who happened to be female should probably not talk about her cooking unless that was truly an instrumental part of her life in the same way that the first line of the obituary about Frida Kahlo should probably refer to her as a painter, not the wife of Diego Rivera. Let's take a quick break. And we're back. Um, I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier um, for kind of selfish reasons. So you, you, one of the early obituaries in this series is Ida B. Wells, as you mentioned earlier, who is one of my idols. I, I, I kind of owe my work in media to her. As awful as it is that someone as influential as Ida B. Wells did not get an obituary, something that really sticks in my craw about it is the fact that, you know, she pioneered journalism tenets that we still use today, right? Like, I think of her as the mother of advocacy journalism in a lot of ways. You know, they media outlets actually dubbed her the princess of the press. And I just think the fact that the New York Times, a bastion of journalistic integrity, did not feel that she warranted an obituary, I think, like, I, I, can't, I, I can't, I almost, like, can't forgive it. I'm like, she was the, right. you know, such a pioneer of your field, of the field that the industry that y'all are in, and you didn't give her an obituary. I know. It's disappointing, and it's just so it's so weird to read the actual piece about when she was married, which appeared on page one, 1895, June 28th, and the style of the newspaper was a lot different then. It was a lot of short, little articles appearing on pages, all kind of crunched together without any visuals. But at the bottom, in the middle of the page, the headline is Ida B. Wells married, period. And then there's a dateline of Chicago. And it says, Miss Ida B. Wells, the colored woman who gained international publicity by her anti-lynching lectures in England, was married in Bethel Church tonight to Ferdinand L. Barnett, a local colored attorney of prominence, who is the publisher of The Conservator and president of the Illinois Anti-Lynching League. And that's the end of it. That was the whole notice. Wow. On so many levels, it's so jarring and just so telling, you know, the use of the word colored, um, the fact that a marriage would be front-page news. And then, of course, the idea that it was newsworthy when a woman of prominence was married to a man, but not when she died. Yeah, that's, I think that you just crystallize why that sticks in my craw so much with this particular woman in history that it was big news that this, like, accomplished woman was was marrying. And when she married, you know, she, they, her husband, they had a, a um, kind of non-traditional at the time marriage where he stayed at home and she 
you know, did lectures and this and that. And so that, like, oh, big news, you know, accomplished woman right. settles down. <laughs> right. And when she dies, not a peep. It's just, it's it, something about it just crystallizes why this is so, like, this glaring disparity. And, and really, something about that example illustrates to me how society sees, particularly black women, but women writ large, that, like, when we marry, it's a front-page news, but when we die, not a peep. Right, and that until, almost until I was born in the early 1980s, those deaths of women would be printed under the husband's name <sighs> as if they were owned. Yeah, I don't think until this project came along, I ever even really thought about what obituaries can tell us about how society sees women. And I think that, honestly, you've kind of taken the rose-colored glasses off where I say, oh, gee, when you look at that, the, the, the fact that women were printed under men as if they didn't even really exist, I mean, that really says it all, doesn't it? Totally. I would be remiss to not point out that in the obituary of Ida B. Wells, it has probably my favorite line maybe the best line ever printed in a newspaper, uh, <laughs> where it's her grandson talking about her, and he says, of his grandmother, Ida B. Wells, she didn't suffer fools, and she saw fools everywhere. That is like, <laughs> I, 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 I don't want to live in a world it's where that line... It's the best engrave it on, uh, I know. <laughs> I want that yeah, on my Yeah, we've headstone. made quote graphics out of it um, for social media that we should probably pin up all over our cubicles. Yes, and it's like, I don't want to live in a world where that tidbit about such an influential woman didn't go printed in a newspaper, right? Like that, like the world needed to see that, that tidbit about Ida B. Wells. And if not for projects like Overlooked, it would be overlooked. Like we wouldn't, we wouldn't have that to look back on in a paper and say, damn, Ida B. Wells was something else. Yeah, exactly. And the nice thing about this project is that it doesn't, you know, we launched on International Women's Day. That was on purpose. But the idea was always to continue this. So it will extend far beyond, and it runs as a regular feature in our obituaries section now and will expand to include anyone who is overlooked. So submissions are still open, um, and people can always tell us who we've missed. Have you gotten any really interesting submissions in the open call for, for folks to eulogize? You know, one of the interesting things was that a lot of people nominated their grandmothers, and when somebody first told me that, I was sort of like, yeah, 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 I'm sure I could nominate my grandmother as well. <laughs> but in fact, we actually went through all of these, and there were grandmothers submitted who were incredible. So we published a piece yesterday highlighting some of these. And there are people like Dr. Anita Figueroa, who was a female physician in the 20th century who was born in Costa Rica at a time when the idea of a woman doctor was really far-fetched. There was Peggy Jean Connor, who sued the governor of Mississippi and other state officials in 1965 for voting rights reappointment, and finally won. She passed away in 2018. There was a woman who was the first female chief of Yale University's health service dermatology clinic in 1971, and was also a successful author who wrote children's books. Her name was Dr. Marguerite Lerner, and her husband had, in fact, received an obituary in the New York Times, and yet she never received the recognition. Wow. There's another woman, Bertha Klossner, who was one of the earliest female literary agents. She lived from 1901 to 1997. So this was a surprise to me that there are so many readers whose grandparents had actually done these amazing things. 
Yeah, it almost is a testament to the way that in our own families, we have these living pieces of history who are in our own blood on our own families and that we, you know, we personally don't want to overlook them. But then I think it's really cool that people are saying like, no, my grandma was actually this amazing person. She wasn't just my grandma. She accomplished this, accomplished that. Like, I think it really is a testament to how personally we know that women in our families and our bloodlines accomplish amazing things, but that when it comes to society at large, somehow they they can go overlooked. And that I think that we don't tend to overlook our moms, our grandmothers, our sisters, all of that, but we're somehow more comfortable with it when society does it. And it, it does not seem as awful somehow as it would be to be like, oh, my grandmother was not important or not special or not this or not that. Like, you would never do that to your grandmother. But then when society does it, it's, you know, it's somehow more accepted. I've always loved that assignment that I feel like everyone gets at some point when they're in elementary school or middle school or high school where you have to interview a family member. And you're like, oh, like, I don't want to interview my mom. I talk to her every day. But then you actually sit down and maybe it's a grandparent or maybe it's a sibling or a cousin. And you learn all of these things about that person that you realized you didn't actually know. So I always encourage people to do that as an assignment. Um, And there's a real loss of, of recorded history when it comes to women. And so I think telling these stories and collecting oral histories and rewriting obituaries, all of this goes into this larger collection of kind of repopulating the cultural narrative that for a long time was written by men. I love that. And this is a perfect time to do it with, you know, things like Me Too and the Women's March. I feel like this is the real time for that that societal and culture shift where we say, hey, Women have been accomplishing things forever. It's time to recognize it. It's time to put it in obituaries. It's time to fund it. It's time to put it on TV. It's time to put it in office. All of the things. I think now is the time for, like, that reckoning of saying, women have always been here, and now it's time to pay attention to us. Said it better than I could have. (laughs) Well, Jessica, where can folks find out more about what you're up to? So you can check out the full Overlooked package and follow along as we continue to publish new ones at newyorktimes.com slash overlooked. You can also follow along in our new newsletter, our gender newsletter. It's called Gender Letter, a uh, very original title. <laughs> and it's at newyorktimes.com slash gender letter. Jessica, thank you so much for being here today. I'm going to get off of this call and go call my grandmother and ask her about her life because, damn it, the women in our world are amazing and we should be building tributes to them wherever that we can. I love that. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again. Well, Smithy listeners, who are some women that you think deserve obituaries who never got them? Did you have an awesome scientist grandmother in your family? Let us know. You can find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast, on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You, and as always, we love your emails at MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. Listener.